0: Welcome to Good Revenue, where we discuss monetization, go to market, and revenue growth. I'm your host, Neetha Bidway. We're here to discuss what we can do to influence more effectively, improve profitability, and sustainably grow revenue while delivering more value to customers over time. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Good Revenue. We are here today with a great guest. Eddie Yoon is a celebrated author, strategist, and a category designer. He's the author of Super Consumers, A Simple, Speedy, and Sustainable Path to Superior Growth. And what I found fascinating about this book when I came across it a few years ago is the core insight, which is about the outsized power of small but mighty segments of customers that spend more money than other segments and drive the business in almost every market, which I thought was just an incredible insight. It's been super helpful to me. And so, Eddie, we are really happy to have you. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: So I wonder if you could maybe just give us a little bit um, from from kind of the start. I mean, I think the audience would love to know, how did you come to this realization? How were you able to unlock these core insights in super consumers? And maybe for the folks who haven't read the book, um, yeah. just a little bit of a backstory would be great too.
1: Yeah. The origin story for that was in my consulting career. So I was a senior partner at the Cambridge Group. I did all kinds of growth strategy work for Fortune 100 companies. And typically when you do kind of large scale strategy consulting assignments, you have access to a lot of data, especially large companies. And um, I found myself in a situation where one of the companies, this was a big global brand, but it was a, I won't say the company, but it was a really fractured organization where it was a brand that was run by four different geographies who all had different ideas of what the brand should be. And um, when I was doing the senior management interviews, the chief operating officer said to me, "Um, you are the eighth consultant to try to fix this. Good luck. And I was like, oh, okay, good. So, and then, you know, everybody, there was very little trust and this idea of, creating a unified data set was not welcome. People are like, no, 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 my data, I don't trust the Europeans, I don't trust the Latin Americans, I don't trust the Asian, whatever it might be, right? So I ended up having to just do a very different type of consulting bit, which was um, how do, it, it was more of a political problem mm-hmm. than an actual business problem. I mean, there were the real business problems as well, but the politics were much bigger. So what I had to do was find an approach that got me to a universal truth that every geography, every business unit head could agree on using their respective data sets. So it had to be a skeleton key that just unlocked everything, which was a little bit of the high bar. And so- All order, um, certainly. <laughs> yeah. So you, you kind of go to first principles with that. And, you know, so super consumers, you asked about the book, you know, it's the 80-20 rule. The Pareto principle goes back to- uh, an insight around Italian landowners that a small fraction of, you know, landowners control mo- the majority of the land and that it's true in virtually every aspect of life, but, um, all, in particular in business, uh, every category, every country that I've ever looked at has this dynamic, uh, at the category level. So I, I was able to take every, you just imagine I was doing marriage counseling with like four different parties. It was, it was really the extent of the project and we we flipped the data and we ranked every country's data set from the highest value consumers to the lowest value consumers on a lifetime value basis and we looked across and this this was in the personal care category so for shampoo and lotion and bar soap and body wash and you know it, it, you, you know inevitably you got to this insight of the people who spend the most on these things uh duh they tended to take more baths and showers than the average bear so you were like okay that seems kind of obvious and then you ask the why why is that the case and then what was kind of hilarious was um every country that we did this analysis in had a a similar story as to why but with a local flavor that made them different right and that it was you know the first shower or bath of the day that's just good hygiene the second or third that's for me and it's yeah. a pleasurable experience and it's it's Maybe I don't have an unlimited budget to go on holiday or go to the theater, but I can take an extra long bath and it's a glorious experience if I have the right shower gels, bath salts, and whatever else it might be, right? And even if it wasn't like a super lengthy one, like a little bit of a lingering shower with great fragrance uh, and shampoo just would make a big difference in my mood and my mindset. And that the British would say, you know, this is about, you know, we respect each other and we have a a degree of etiquette that lives above other markets. And so that's why we do it. And the Italians would say, you know, we don't live to work, we work to live, and this is what life is like. And the Mexicans would say, well, we we come from Aztec culture, and that was the most sophisticated culture in all of you know, human civilization. And they understood that cleanliness was next to godliness. And it was just interesting to see they all got to the same place that taking an incremental shower bath, you know, enabled by the modern luxury of of plumbing was something that anybody could do. And it was a great joy uh, in a busy day and a real affordable luxury there. And so we, we built this whole strategy around this fragrance so good it makes you wanna sink in the shower, and the bath. And that was kind of the thing. The brand grew double digits. Everyone kind of rallied around it. They drove great innovation around it. And it was just a real lesson to me of like, wow, I, I can do this work that I normally do without all the trappings of the large consulting assignment, because I got to a fundamental truth. And so I started to just strip away a lot of what I was doing to, okay, let's just look at what are the North stars that I can prove in any data set around the world. And my old firm was acquired by Nielsen. So I had the data to back it up. And it it just became incredibly useful when I was also working in other situations where The company did not have a lot of data or a lot of resources, and so you know, going, I found that this approach allowed me to work with Fortune 100 companies, also with startups, also with um, new categories, and that was the part that was incredibly exciting. Was the versatility that I had, which gave me the flexibility to say maybe I need to just radically simplify the way that I look at strategy which allowed me to focus on innovation and R&D and other things, which ultimately allowed me to leave and go out on my own and do more writing. So, you know, I owe a lot to that very difficult, challenging project, um, and I'm grateful for it, but it, it was one of those, like, you're really kind of sweating in the corner, like, oh, I, this better work. And then, you know, that's when you know that you have a fundamental truth. So
0: it's amazing to see what came out of that. And in your experience, are there any sectors, categories or where this doesn't apply The other related question is, are super consumers more applicable in a consumer setting versus in a B2B setting?
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I have yet to find a category where it doesn't apply. Mm. Like you might, you might have to look at it slightly differently and measure it. So to take, take a category like insurance, you'd Mm be like, you know, like, okay, chocolate, I understand people can eat a lot more of that, but insurance, like what happens there? But you end up with people who have, I wrote right about this in the book of people who have way more insurance than they actually need. And that just seems kind of like, why would you spend money on something that, well, some people like feeling protected and mm-hmm. like feeling like they have uh, every worst case scenario taken care of. And that even in a B2B setting, if you look at a company like um, companies in defense contracting or aerospace, by and large, they have like one customer, uh, the US government, right? And so it's the principle is even more extreme, I, I find, than B2B environments. So it's usually this whole idea, if you take not just the economics of like, it's the 80-20 and the spending side, but I also look at it from, you know, how much time do people spend mm. uh, and then how much energy and emotion that they, they spend. Because re- really what you're trying to track is emotional engagement as expressed through money and time and... Loyalty recommendation, however it might be, you know, and and it's the same principle. The more into something that you are, the more likely you are willing to pay for it and to pay a premium for it. And the less likely you are, the less likely you could, you'll just be like, ah, whatever is cheaper and you're not going to have a loyalty to it. And that that's the whole core of the idea is just not follow the money, but follow the emotion.
0: So if you're following the emotion, how did you come to the insight that a super in one category is also a super in nine? Because I find that to be really interesting, too.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it was in my, that that one project that I was talking about that was quite difficult was when you have kind of a lack of depth in data, which is what most large companies have, you start to look for, well, how, how do I build my case that I have the right answer here? So I, I started to look at breadth in that the things that were also true of somebody who used a lot of shampoo and bar soap, obviously they took a lot of baths well, what does that also mean? That it also meant that they were over-indexed on candles and other scented products. It also meant that they were overdone on lotions and towels. And so that, and th- like, it, it just became kind of logical, like, okay, there's some things that are very close in that naturally go together, that most people put stuff in their coffee, you know, sweetener or milk. or de- So you drink a lot of coffee, you're going to find that you know, other things are correlated with that, but that if you ladder it up to the broader benefit, like it, it just became second nature around, okay, everybody who is a super consumer of something, there is a kind of step one is to not dismiss it as random weirdos, which is like, I find that the way that most business people are trained from school, from large companies is to look at the national average. And I actually find that you learn more from the weird you know nooks and crannies of the data, I call it weird data, and that, you know, some of the weird data that became evident was that number one, if you buy an extraordinary amount of a category, there is a logical reason. Don't Please assume that on. they're weirdos. And that the logical reason usually spans from they have multiple uses for the category that go beyond the normal, like, I have glasses, they help me see. That's the normal one. But there, in the world of Zoom, uh, what these uh, a glasses uh, company that i've i've uh, talked to they're like oh yeah we have super consumers they skew female they can have as many 16 pairs of glasses and they're like i'm on these zoom calls all day long and it's kind of tricky but i can accessorize and change my glasses to my you know like it becomes a different thing than you know like glasses morph to be like jewelry or hat mm-hmm. is a different use case than i'm nearsighted i'm farsighted i'm, I'm whatever it might be and that What you end up with is that, okay, you you buy a lot because you have a rational reason, because you have multiple use cases. The use cases tend to span a ladder of benefits from rational benefits to emotional benefits to aspirational benefits of some sort. And that when you understand those things that allows you to craft different marketing strategies, different selling strategies, different innovation strategies, different business models based on the core nugget of what it is that people are actually trying to solve for and that when you have a rational need only, no, no emotion or no aspirational needs, you buy it occasionally you don't care about it pricing doesn't matter innovation yeah. doesn't matter, right But if it means something emotionally to you or and or it means something way beyond you know the category but it, it's it has a purpose in your life and defines you in a way that is truly deeply rooted in your soul then yeah, you're going to pay a lot of or a premium for it. You can be one over with innovation and guess what? You're going to tell your friends about it. And that, um, th- by and large, super consumers is a simple idea. That's obvious that people don't fully appreciate the depth to which it can have power for them to grow because, you know, I have a theory, um, that I've built out. So if I rewrote a redo super consumers, or write a second version of it is that in the same way that. Energy costs will probably go to zero, the marginal cost of energy because of solar and renewable and compute costs will go to zero with GPUs and NVIDIA and AI chips that are making things much cheaper. I think the cost of acquiring a customer, your CAC, should go down to near zero if you understand the super one is a super of nine concept, right? Because the ability to A, find your super consumer and if you win them over, rational, emotional, and aspirational they will sing your category praises as well as your brand's praises and give you the most powerful form of marketing there is word of mouth. You know, word of mouth is always will be the most powerful and cost effective because it doesn't cost you anything form of marketing, which is why the the Super Bowl, when CBS sells out $600 million worth of ads, it's just kind of funny because none of that really amounts to anything. Most people don't remember the ads, but you don't. What you would remember is if Nita told me, "Hey, this brand of shoe is the most." I feel like I'm floating on cloud nine. I can run faster. I can stand longer. I look great, or whatever it might be. I'm like, "Oh, okay." Let me go find that pair of shoes and buy it as a result of that, right? So you have word of mouth from an individual super consumer, but the second part of why customer acquisition cost should go to zero is that. Somebody who digs on shoes also is going to be, you know, grooving on other categories that are adjacent to it that allow you to find uh, a cheaper way of acquiring them. It may be as simple as let me find a partnership with a category that I don't even anywhere near compete with, and let's solve each other's marketing budgets. And that one of my uh, clients, Clint Carnell, uh, he was the former CEO of Hydrofacial. He and I uh, uh, formed a company called Grayspace and we took over a medical facial brand called Geneo and Glow 2 Facial. Uh, we, we lead that in the US. When we took it over in Q4 of 22, um, marketing as a percent of sales was 75%, if you can believe that. That's a lot. <laughs> uh, very, very high. And then uh, a year later, uh, we were able to drop it down to 12%, but we quadrupled the size of the business in a year. right? Largely on the back of super consumers driving word of mouth, and around this core inside of a super of one is a super of nine activated in that space, and so like it's just one where I've become the data supports it, my client work supports it, um, the businesses that I run directly support it as well, and that it's an oldie but a goodie. Like you know, when your parents told you you got to get a good night's sleep, turns out they were right, and turns out it has a huge impact on the rest of your life, and. And you know what Uh, an investment in your sleep habits can make a huge big difference in how you feel during the day and your work life and your career and so it's a bit like that it's not going to be you know people will nod their heads like oh yeah but usually they dismiss and misunderstand the true power that it has and the breadth of applications across your entire business
0: so i have two questions there do you think that is because in a lot of businesses people are not really thinking in segments. And it's kind of a leading question because I I find that often in work that, um, that people are obsessed with like a persona or ICP if they're in B2B, but they're not thinking about like common characteristics, which is how I would define a, a segment. Do you think that's part of the problem or is yeah. it something else?
1: I, I think it's people doing two things, over-complicating things, number one. Sure. Um, and that part of, you know, I did this for years, which was when I realized that that seminal project taught me that, a lot of my consulting was like, "Oh, let me, let me let me tell you about the complexity of the consumer or the customer. You need really sophisticated techniques to you know figure out who they are." And you would mentioned personas and analytics, and you know, there's all this stuff around uh, depth on the nuances of the consumer. And yet, the simple kind of nugget of like, "Well, why don't we look at the people who buy the most and probably care the most, and figure out what so their root I mean- needs are." my old partners at my old firm um, were not happy when I wrote the book, Super Consumers, because it kind of demystifies- The
0: the magic of consulting.
1: (laughs) Quite a bit, right? Because it becomes, and I'll, I'll often tell people who want help, I'm like, I can tell you what the answer is. I don't know that to be, I don't have the facts to back it up, but here's what I think it is. And if you don't need to prove to anybody to execute it, Don't pay me anything, just go do it and see what happens. That's the best data, right? And then usually they say, well, no, 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 I I need you to hold my hand. Then we figure out if there is a there there to collaborate with. But like most times I feel like it's academics, consultants, and frankly, you know, other executives trying to justify their jobs and their reason for being of like, hey, this is way more complicated than you realize. I have to do all this magic. And at the end of the day, it becomes either complexity that you can't execute, number one, or you've gone so down the rabbit hole that you forget kind of the basics of like, no, that's not, you know, this, this I mean, I, actually, I, that's what I think the Super Bowl is, the, the more I think about it, is is um, people who've gone down the rabbit hole convincing themselves that a really, really clever turn of phrase, color scheme, you know, pitch or idea is going to when the day, when it's like, no, it's a lot simpler than that, actually, so.
0: I think it's easy to fall in love with your own brand too, yeah. when it's all you think about, right? Yeah. Um, so one question I'm also curious about, do super consumers evolve or change over time? Like if we are thinking of it as a segment, yeah. like let's say I love taking baths now or whatever, does that change when you look at the segment? And how, how might you measure it if the, if in fact it's not consistent forever?
1: Yeah, yeah. so I, I think they definitely change in the way that they express their behavior, um, I think that the underlying quest rarely changes. Um, So the quest for, let's take the the shower gel, personal care super consumer, Mm -hmm. that's somebody who is like, you know what, for my mental health and get through the day, a little bit of me time is quite valuable and I'm gonna protect it and I'm gonna invest behind it. And that core, I serve other people, all day long, but I need, I know I need to put my own oxygen mask on before everybody else's. So that's going to be my time. And I express it through multiple showers, multiple baths, and, you know, buying more soap, shampoo, higher end premium stuff or whatever it might be. Right. And so the nature of what they buy could change with innovation, certainly. Right. And so it might be, oh, there's a new brand that comes out and that there's a new category of shower gels that is, you know, you know, they went, Bars to gels, to foam, to, you know, whatever, right? And so you should expect supers to be promiscuous. And that's the part that people misunderstand. Like, oh, if I win the super, they're going to be like, no, no, no. It, that'd be like, oh, a golfer should only have one club in their bag. Mm-hmm. No, like they, they supers understand different brands, different categories, play different roles. So if I'm in a sand trap versus the putting green versus driving, I need something different because that's why, be, you know, my needs are much more nuanced and evolved that way and so you're not surprised to see supers trying new things they may walk from legacy brands but rarely does the quest
0: underlying it really it usually intensifies so they're passionate about the problem but they're open to solutions which is also 100%. good to know yeah you got to earn 100%. their business okay yeah.
1: the only nuance is kind of major major life change so mm. you know, birth of a child, you know, basically when your household increases or shrinks, sure, that, that kind of stuff can have a market effect. And, you know, the the quest may disappear, may evolve, may be expressed in a different way, but kind of macro things being equal that the quest usually stays constant.
0: Um, the topic of super geographies, I think this is really interesting too. I've heard you talk about it a little bit. Could you expand on, on how we should think about this insight and maybe maybe tell us a little bit about you know what what your finding was there too
1: yeah so th- this is um was kind of fun for me on the data trail was that you have these super consumers but then what we found was geographically they were clustered together birds of a feather flock together and that when you dug into why you uncovered really important nuances that helped you figure out how to grow and create new categories so like I mm-hmm. said a word salad there's so what does that mean so people who buy a lot of a certain category, they tended to spike in certain parts of a country, within the country, certain cities, and within certain cities, certain zip codes or postcodes like, and it it was really quite interesting where um, my uh, family was in Alaska last year and we drove by uh, and one of the tour guides was like, that Walmart over there in Wasilla, Alaska was famous for having the Walmart executives visit because they sold more duct tape in that Walmart than anywhere else in the country. Kind of a random thing, right? You're like- well, Kind of random, sure. Yeah, What? and then you're like, okay, well, what's going on there? And then you kind of unpack it and you're like, okay, it's Alaska. It's extreme temperatures. Mm. It's, there's a lot of things that can happen. And so guess what? You're in the car and you have some inclement weather and you got to go somewhere for a couple of hours and your window busts. Got to have duct tape. Patches it up in a second there. And that, you know, wh- when you are in the- environment where mother nature is far more dominant and unexpected, then duct tape becomes your best friend. Versus if you live in a sterile, and like, so I, I grew up in Hawaii, why doesn't change, you know, we get a hurricane every once every 20 years, but other than that, it's pretty predictable. I don't have a need for duct tape there. And that what you ended up kind of figuring out was that duct tape demand was not specific to Wasilla, Alaska, but was specific to the conditions that were common in there, but also elsewhere, and would also kind of imply what other parts of the world have conditions like that, where we're not talking about duct tape as the catch-all solution that could save your life in a pinch, right? And that that that's the whole thing of like, you know, the, the entirety of business, um, probably for the last 30 years, has been around the singular goal of efficiency and um, scale, in that you you wanted a national strategy, you wanted a global strategy because you had all of this revenue that was covering your asset costs on one supply chain or one business model, and that's how you made your cost structure became that much more efficient, whereas um, what, what I generally find is that. So back to my glow-to-facial business, in in the medical aesthetics business, that uh, 10% of the U.S. zip codes, there's 40,000 zip codes in the U.S., 10% to 4,000, drive 54% of all the revenue.
0: Actually, not surprised to hear that, but it's interesting. Yeah, right.
1: So you're you're like, okay.
0: I can guess which coasts. (laughs) You
1: can guess. You can, absolutely. And so that's the immediate reactions you think about and you're like, oh, that makes sense, intuitive sense. And then you go, why am I running a national business then? Why do I have a national footprint? If I have salespeople, why do I have them in every market? If I have marketing spent, why am I peanut buttering my marketing everywhere? If, if I launch innovation, why am I launching it everywhere? You know, and, and it, I've gotten into so much trouble with this theory around people because like most of the fortune 100 hate this idea because it calls into question why they need to exist. Many of them, right? Because I've been called into by one of the largest CPG companies in the world yelled at me for the Super Consumer book. It, it, it was a bit like, "How dare you publish this without consulting?" I'm like, "Oh, I didn't realize I was in you know communist China here, and I had no freedom of speech or whatever." But it was basically like it was very threatening to the way they did marketing, which was scale, efficiency, uh, marketing effectiveness, and and so you know, like it, there there was a great article uh, interview that uh, HBR did with Jerry Seinfeld and. You know, the, the interviewer at HBR was like, you know, your, your, your humor process, oh, it sounds so laborious and difficult and hard to scale. Like, don't you think it could be made more efficient? Like if you brought in McKinsey and the Jerry Seinfeld goes, who's McKinsey? And like, well, they're a global consulting firm. And they do efficiency, this and that. And he's like, are they funny? And the, the person's like, uh, no, it's like, then I don't need them. It's not meant to be efficient. It's meant to be funny. You got to take the hard road sometimes to get there in that, you know, the quest for efficiency goes hand in hand with huge companies because, you know, and, and this is this is a little bit of a soapbox for me is that the vast majority of people running the largest companies are what I call trust fund managers. They did not build the business. They did not found the business. They inherited the business. They're caretakers. And they're, yeah. They're caretakers, right. 100%. And so all that they do is try to keep the current state, the current state. Right. And so whenever you bring up this idea of like, you do know like 46% of your cost structure is unnecessary. They get really mad about that because you're taking away half their kingdom and and calling into question everything that they believe and they don't want you to talk about it, despite the fact that, you know, every startup, every high growth company is going to look at that and say, oh, I can do this much, much faster. Sure.
0: That's the opportunity. Yeah well i find it so interesting though because even for a global or a national brand i still think you would want to grow in segments because of course not everyone is the same and again and i have a background i came out of a political environment and that is how you move you know you you can't tackle everything you pick segments and you go after things the same is true in business in my experience at least so i just i find it interesting but i guess what you're also saying is it's changed like it has worked one way for a long time um, and I, I do think people struggle with the with change. So,
1: well, politics is a quite interesting analog because I think technology has made it a lot easier to do segment yep. execution. Absolutely. And you know, we we've seen that in politics, but then um, also the 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 whole of it is I think businesses could learn a lot from how the political structure works, which is like it's the ground game that matters. Yes as much if not more so than the air game and that you know this whole kind of win the right supers business or politics win the right super geographies and you win the the whole shebang there right And that and that the the part that i think is very frightening for people is that it seems very risky um and yet what they don't appreciate as business as usual is way riskier
0: it's a sunk cost right it's so it's hard it's hard to identify
1: and no one will blame you for failing yeah. doing it the conventional way.
0: Right, I'm I'm laughing. This is uh, this is too close to home. <laughs> Coming back to to uh, to the concept of outliers that you were speaking of a little bit ago, what is it about outliers that ties into the potential for something to be a huge category? And so, I'm, you know, I know you you're very focused on category design, which yeah. I find fascinating as well. Um, but there's a there's a question there, in my mind, at least about the sizing of the potential. And uh, so I don't know if you have an example or maybe could you walk us through you know what that looks like for you?
1: Yeah. So I, I, I think the one of the things that uh, Mike Maples, Jr., who is a venture capitalist, he I love this quote, he says, um, category designers are time travelers from the future. Mm-hmm. And the outliers, uh, I find it's the future talking to us in the present. And that's why I like them so much. And that in part, the super geo analysis is is another good one of really when you think about, so Anheuser-Busch was a big client of mine 15 plus years ago. And back then it was like, hey, craft beer is coming. But then you look at the data nationally and you'd be like, ah, low single digits, who cares, right? And then you'd zoom into like Portland, Oregon or parts of Seattle and you are like, it's like 15, 20% of the category here, like uh, what's going on? And that if you looked at geographies, not as a scatterplot of like, well, nationals here, Chicago's here, Portland, they're just weird, right? But if you looked at it as a, almost like a surrogate for longitudinal data, well, what if Portland is the future? Mm. Oh, I never thought about that. Well, Why why would it be the future? Well, let's look at was Portland's craft beer share always fifteen hundred percent? No. Well, how long did it take to get there? Well, you know, da, 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 da. what else is true about it? Pack Northwest. Um, well, coffee culture is there. Okay, what's true about coffee culture? Well, Starbucks and the like brought a much stronger coffee flavor to the market. Dunkin' Donuts on the East Coast and much lighter uh, palette of coffee. Starbucks was almost burnt. And and they they've done a magical job of convincing people that the more bitter it tastes, the better it is, which is not true. But anyway, that's a <laughs> whole different story.
0: I agree with and you. That, yeah.
1: <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> and, and that tr- stronger flavored coffee might be correlated with stronger flavored beers. Yeah. Might be correlated with you know red wines versus white wines, with brown spirits versus white spirits, and all this kind of stuff, right? And so then you you look at that and you're like, is coffee a leading indicator of craft beer? That's a weird data point of like, okay, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But when you follow like, I, which one everyone one is the chicken or the egg it's hard to know, but I can count the number of Starbucks and where they are and how fast that they're growing and use that as a predictive measure for craft beer is going to go with it. Right. And so in, in the same way that, um, I have many friends in the coffee category and, and that when Keurig, what we tiny little player, you could just tell in certain markets, it was huge. And why was it huge in certain markets? Well, in the markets that it was huge, it was in offices. Why was it huge in offices? It skewed toward you know, offices that had higher income professions, doctors and uh, finance professionals and everything else. And that you could basically track the progression of single-serve coffee based on the penetration in offices, which was predicated on the basis of high-income professions, having a small, medium business in that area and the like, right? So this whole kind of, when you can appreciate that the future is coming, that change, if anything, will be accelerating versus decelerating. And that an outlier is not anything more than the future knocking on the door telling you, hey, something's coming down the pike here, right? The same with electric vehicles, right? It's the whole kind of, you wanna see where EVs are going, look at California. It's way hard to find a Tesla charging spot there than it is in Chicago, right? And so like, that's kind of the future. That's why they're building it out in a way and that Tesla is probably the greatest example of a super consumer company in that it has probably sold 5 million cars lifetime, and it's the most valuable company in a car company in the world by a mile. It's on the basis of that lifetime value. It is not Toyota and it's not VW and it's not General Motors with way more car sales in the history because the market is recognizing that a company that's predicated on super consumers is going to lead on innovation, is going to lead on pricing power, is going to lead on margin and everything else. And so like it's the weirdos and the outliers are actually the greatest gift if you can see it for what they are.
0: Those are great examples. Those are super helpful, especially the Starbucks one. I can really hear both um, super geographies and adjacency as you talk through that. One other topic I'm curious about, we spend a lot of time here talking about monetization, You know, really uh, finding the right business model applicable to your segments. Uh, willingness to pay, and I noticed that your um, your seven question framework, which to help people actually identify super consumers, heavily focuses on willingness to pay, which I found really insightful. How do you think about that work when it comes back to actually understanding pricing potential and monetization opportunities, business models, etc., as you're designing a category or growing a category? There's, that's a big question, I realize, but
1: oh no, yeah, it's I think. Just in the same way that super consumers are the Swiss army knife for strategy, like it just is super helpful for anything that you're going to solve for is that when you have people designing new categories, uh, innovation, whatever it might be, are you willing to pay a premium for this is the most honest question that can be asked out there. I, I remember, I don't know, this is like 20 years ago when United first launched Economy Plus, and they they took out rows of seats and they added extra seats and it was for you know, their frequent flyers. And then the CMO and the CFO were fighting about it. The CFO was like, how do you know this is working? CMO's like, our customers love it. But CFO was like, but, but, but capacity is lower. And then the CFO finally said, no, prove to me that it's worth it, charge a premium for it. And they did, and it worked, right? And $50 million dropped to the bottom line. And that consumers, Actually, you know, you, this is a good one for corollary with politics, like they don't always tell you the truth. I mean, they'll tell you what they aspire to. Yeah. Oh, yes, I want to buy an eco-friendly brand. Uh, but if it's not as good, they're not going to, they're going to buy the polluting brand or what the rest of it is, right? The, to to do the right thing, it has to be for a product or a category or brand that is far superior. You would have bought it anyway, even without the good thing associated with it, right? So. I have found when it comes to environmental sustainability or cause, you know, marketing or social justice products or whatever, people want to do the right thing, but they're not, the paycheck, the wallet really tells the truth of how willing they are to do it. And that whenever you do anything, the Tesla strategy is always the right one in the sense of like, you start at the high end of the market, it's just the hardest bar to clear. They launched an electric sports car. right? Cool. Okay. That's going to be, the hardest bar, uh, and the most discriminating consumer. Now there are companies that can start at the bottom and move their way up. Um, you see companies like BYD are doing that on that case, but then like, that's a different type of situation. And you're not gonna, I I have not found you better be right on your ability to drive efficiencies, like at a huge amount of volume. I actually find that whether it is a new product, oh, you're, 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 you know, launching a new brand, great. Can you charge more for it? Uh, 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 yeah. launching a new marketing campaign, great. Can I raise my prices? Uh, you know, then like this is my litmus test of like the CFO should be your greatest friend. Yeah. Whatever you do. And if, if that, if she is not on board with your thing, you probably are going down the wrong rabbit hole.
0: You're probably not asking the right questions either, I think. 100%. Now, you don't have to charge
1: a premium. But if you can and then you parity price it, you're going to drive tons of market share and growth, right? But the the point being, you should be able to do that. Anything that you do should be in service of increasing my ability to charge more.
0: So you really use it as it's it's a North Star metric and starting with the uh with with the premium buyer, which makes sense of sense to me because I would I would call that the the best fit customer and, and orient around that. And then you might have other segments that you would add over time, but the offering would be different, right? You're not, they're not buying the Tesla sports car, they're buying yep. the model three.
1: Sure. It, it, it's it's a bit like, you know, um, oh, this new diet or this new workout routine is great. Great. What does your belt say? What does the scale say? <laughs> it's It's the most honest thing when it comes to a, a business metric that I know of. And most people don't want to go there because they don't want to face the truth.
0: But when it comes to category design, what do you think people get wrong about it?
1: I think they mistake it to be risky. Mm. That I, I think they're the fundamental, uh, you know, people, when you explain category design, their their reaction is, that'd be great. That sounds exciting. Oh, that sounds really scary. And then my, my reaction is, I, I think you're not doing some fundamental analysis or math of like. I think business as usual is scary. <laughs> That's my point of view in that business as usual might feel great for the temper, but it makes you slow, it makes you lazy, makes you complacent, it makes you um, at risk. You know, like you know, basic econ 101 tells you if you make a profit, competitors are gonna come in and try to take it away, right? And so like, I just think the misnomer is it sounds risky to try to, you know, charge a profit on my product, do a business model where I can get more pricing power or margin with it or innovate the category in a different, you know, why? why would I build a strategy around this outlier data? That sounds really risky. And I think what you're, there have been more bankruptcies in 2023 than in a long, long while. Some of it is related to rates and some of the macro stuff, but more of it is a function of like, Bed Bath and Beyond survived for many years giving away those 20% mailing coupons like not really good strategy <laughs> like you can you can discount your way to to growth and that that's the part that I think is consumer or executives aren't doing the math and aren't calculating both the upside and the risk of not doing category design.
0: So if a company is thinking about it what do you think that they should double down on or really focus on when it comes to category design?
1: Yeah, you know, you know, the the, the ability to do a small pilot, I think mm-hmm. is great, you know, and and it's, you don't have to, the scenarios where large companies have done category design have usually started out in a skunk works, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Nespresso was headquartered in Lausanne, Switzerland, not in Vevey, which is just an hour train, very, very close to the headquarters there. It was treated as a separate, you know, strategic business unit, and allowed to grow on its own. Um, you know, they had Nescafe, they had lots of other coffee brands, and they allowed it to incubate there. And that—that's usually the path: is that start small. Um, you know, if you're a B two C company, go B two B. Solve a B two B problem. If you're a B two B company, solve a B two C company. Right? Costco and Sam's Club were originally B two B club stores for convenience store people to buy and fill their stuff, and then consumers were like, "I want in." And so, like usually, it's a um, the end state is category design. If you accept it as an inevitability, if it's about the future, it's inevitable. So you have to do it. Well, then how do I do it? Well, do it in a discrete way that is, it can be small, and do it in a way that's so different that the core business isn't threatened by it. I think Nespresso, similar to Keurig, grew in its early days, B2B, selling to offices, not to consumers, right? And that I, I know actually a, a lot of the f- uh, executives who ran the competing single circuit coffee systems like Kraft to this day believe they had a superior coffee system, Casimo. And they they were like, I don't understand. We had a better product and they, in their minds. Uh, we dropped a hundred million in working media. Why it didn't it work? You went B2C, you didn't go B2B, right? And the mm. B2B turns out to be the greatest marketing strategy is to sell a new coffee device into an office where employees can try it for free and like, oh, maybe I want this from my home, right? And that that that's the whole kind of like um, do it small, do it differently uh, than your core business. And then um, if you treated it as not just a skunk works, but as a vetting and validation process for, is that you assume the future is coming, and that the future is category design in some way and that you need to do it versus somebody else doing it to you. And you you take this kind of small pilot of category designers and you use them to vet every out. Hey, weird data here. Let's go figure out if there's a there there, right? And they prosecute, oh, not a there there, don't worry about it. That's great. That's a that's a great insurance policy. Or there is a there there, but it would be wholly disruptive. Okay, we'll spin you out, you do your own thing, or no, there's a there. There we should nurture it, and we think it can be vastly complementary to the core business, and we'll, but we'll let's 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 sort it out down the road with that. But um, I, I think it's just a matter of flipping the assumption around risk, inevitability, and um, incrementality.
0: It makes a lot of sense. Is there anything else about super consumers or category design that you would like to share with us?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, you know the. I think it goes back to just its first principles, fundamental truth of like, everybody is a super consumer of something. So if you know to those people, there's a lot of people who don't believe in this theory uh, for all the reasons that I described earlier, but then I'm like, okay, so if I looked at your credit card bill, I wouldn't see any weird anomalies on there. Of course I'm gonna see them, right? And that I think when you accept the fact that everybody is a super consumer of something, every category of super consumers, and they are a sign of the future, not a weird anomaly. And I think it's a super consumers pricing power category design. They're all exercises and brutal honesty. And it's it's okay if you don't want the future to come. Because like, you know what? I'm the number one market leader. I have a great job. I just want my options to invest. And then I'll rest invest in good, you know, fine. That, that's great. Just be honest about that. However, if you are... Nowhere near retirement age, and you um, are at all motivated by doing something legendary. This is the path to get there, and so like I, I think, as long as people are honest about it, then I think you give people the great chance to choose their destiny, whether it's here yeah. or there. But you know, that's all. It's it, it's a it's a core truth. If people kind of recognize it and say, "I get it. It's not doesn't fit my risk profile," so no, thank you. I have no problem with that it's the people who are not genuine about it or you know honest about it that i have a problem with but
0: i love that too because it's uh it's like a scavenger hunt or just an adventure right if you if you start from that premise i what i like about that is the framing is what is actually possible and and keeping an eye out for those patterns so I, i love that it's very interesting well just the last question then is um from your perspective, what do you think that high performance companies do differently from the run of the mill? You've uh, you've had an incredible vantage point to see a lot of different firms. So, what what is your take on that?
1: You know, um, the best high performance companies I've seen—they're missionaries, not mercenaries—is mm. generally what I found is that mercenaries can win in the near term, but they don't win in the long run. And so, like my old friends at Anheuser, one of the things I always kind of talk about is. Before they lost their way, after they were acquired by the Brazilians and kind of everything went went financial, they had an incredible run in the 80s to the mid-2000s, where they went from 25 share to 48 share. And the August Bush III, who ran them, um, very much a command and control guy. But what was kind of fascinating was everywhere you went in their headquarters in St. Louis, um, there was a sign that said, making friends is our business. I think they understood at a very fundamental level that yeah, you know, they're in business to make money and to grow and everything else. But that part of the reason why people nowadays make fun of Bud Light or Budweiser or being kind of, you know, not craft beer or just kind of bad quality beer was that it was the common denominator that everybody could drink it together. And that there was some aspect of socialization and commonality. And again, uh, they, they would give the executives wham, walking around money. And they would like, hey, if you, Go to a bar or a restaurant and you see somebody drinking a non-anager project, buy them a beer. Love that. You know, and just see what happens. Like and you don't with no expectation, right? And that the best businesses, they they are high performance, they want to compete, they want to win, but they are driven by a very clear purpose that is not motherhood and apple pie, but it ties directly to the business. And that the ones that have clarity around the mission and purpose of the company and why. What they do beyond their PL and balance sheet is a fundamental good in and of itself. They sustain and weather the bumps along the road and they they create the most value in the long run. It's the ones who are very clearly like everyone for themselves, we're here to screw over the customer before they can screw us over or each other or whatever. Like those are the ones that they may be a, a flash in the pan, but they don't last because the purpose isn't there. And so there's a little bit of this, when the mission matches the founder and the executives matches the employees and matches ultimately the super consumer, great things can happen there.
0: What a great place to leave this. Thank you so much for joining us. This was, as I expected, a really fantastic conversation. Very much appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us here at Good Revenue. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review, follow the show, or share it with a friend. We're a news show, so it really helps other listeners find us. And if you have feedback, comments, or suggestions for episodes or guests, please reach out to us. You can find our information in the show notes. This show was produced with the help of RPS Audio, experts in sound and podcast production.